0: Yes, yes, it is DJ Ski from Dash Radio and you are now listening to the number one South Asian radio station in the world. I'm talking about Ruckus Avenue Radio, Dash Radio's
1: exclusive
2: South Asian station. Let's go.
0: I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle. And as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dharndekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, join us for a conversation with neurosurgeon, author, and chief medical correspondent for CNN, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Stay tuned. You know, it really does bear repeating, so I'll say it again. I am profoundly grateful for everyone listening to the show. And thank you so much for subscribing to the podcast, sharing it with your friends, and following us on social media at friend. And yes, that's F-R-A-I-N-D-T. A whole separate story behind that one for later. So in September of 2005, I was serving as the pediatrician on a mobile medical clinic. And in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, I had the privilege to care for kids and their families in both Houston, Texas and Biloxi, Mississippi. Now these were really sobering experiences, exhausting long days and nights of working in makeshift locations with devastated and displaced communities. It was definitely before heavy social media and the iPhone, so staying up to date was dependent on, well, the news. And as a physician, trying to comprehend the ineffective and paralyzed institutional responses was simply discouraging. I was so proud and compelled to be there, but it was frustrating to a degree, and it felt like no one really cared or really understood what was going on. But you know, every day I found a glimmer of reassurance, camaraderie, and hope in the form of 2-5 to minute segments on CNN. And that reminded me that someone understood the situation, was sharing it through an informed and intelligent lens, and was exuding the trust that we, that I, was craving. For me and so many others, that form of solace, empathy, and honesty came from another doctor, a neurosurgeon and medical correspondent on CNN named Sanjay Gupta. And for over 20 years now, through times of crisis and times of calm, Sanjay's been a wealth of medical knowledge, in many ways serving as a medical compass for the American and global public. Originally from Michigan, where he grew up and completed medical school, he now practices medicine and lives with his family around Atlanta. I was so grateful to catch up with him to talk about life as an Indian American in 2021, about his first days at CNN, about navigating through the challenges of combating misinformation and disinformation, and we even shared notes about raising teenagers. I told him how my daughter is in college about three miles from our house, and he seemed very excited by that prospect for his own daughters. Go Bears, by the way. We started out though by welcoming him and sharing a very important endorsement. I guess delighted is the word, but I'm truly thrilled to be on with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, thank you so much for joining us.
3: What a pleasure. Are. Thank you for having me. And I love the podcast. I've listened to it and I love the title and the sensibility. It's, it's, it's great. I think we need more, more of that, it seems nowadays.
0: You know I was telling a colleague uh, of mine that there's likely several thousand Sanjay Guptas in the world but I'm proud to share that you're the official Sanjay Gupta of trust me I know what I'm doing so thank you
3: Yeah no I appreciate that cuz there are there are a lot of us as it turns out as you know and even a a movie director in India Yeah and and I will sometimes get these strangest messages either on social or otherwise saying hey I really loved your movie or or sometimes i really hated your movie <laughs> either one <laughs> but i you know i don't know how to take those except to tell them that wrong wrong sanjay wrong guy goodbye. right um wrong guy
0: listen you you've been at cnn now for over 20 years do you remember your first day I, i'm trying to remember what i was doing 20 years ago i think i was in my first couple of months as chief resident you know <laughs> do you remember that first day uh at, at cnn and what that felt like and are there any parallels to maybe your first day in in med
3: school or as an intern? I do remember my first day pretty well. Um, it, it it was it it felt very very heady uh, because it was a brand new world, and I think any time, especially for me at the time, I was um, thirty one years old. I you know was was practicing already and had gone through the gauntlet of you know seven years of training, neurosurgical training, and was on faculty. And all of a sudden, to sort of immerse yourself in a brand new thing, um, was was it was it was daunting. I felt, you know, I mean, I think I think maybe anything is the first time you're doing something like that. But I still remember even the first story. It was um, it was something that I had uh, been reading about uh, even before I started, and it had to do with um, Agent Orange of all things and potential oh. reparations for the military because of some of what had happened in Vietnam. And uh, I, I just remember answering these questions with the anchor. It was a bit of a blur and uh, sort of seeing how television all came together. But I can tell you, I, I was really very nervous. Uh, and I was also very glad that the, the digitization of, of all these tapes and stuff weren't as, as robust as they are now because you can't find that tape probably. That's <laughs> a good thing. Right, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> sort of leave it in the
0: archives at some point, right?
3: I, I did say to the bosses, my bosses, of which there are many, uh, like some ten years at later, I said, "Hey, I got to question your judgment because I know <laughs> what I was like, and I wouldn't have hired me. <laughs> I wouldn't have kept me." <laughs>
0: well, I mean, uh, were there some surprises along the way then? I mean, reflecting back on that, and even coming to you know this time now, and and how the world is so different. You know, you're such a wonderful storyteller, and. And as a surgeon and a, a problem solver, you're you're asked to, to share your opinion and your thoughts so often. When you reflect back on on this time uh, over the years, ha- how have you become a better listener? You think that there's been some some direct uh, correlation to to all the experiences and and also maturing, so so to speak.
3: I, I really think so. Uh, you know, I mean, I I, I think the you know i think oftentimes when people think about these sort of bifurcated careers you think of one clearly building to another right and my medical my medical background in some ways makes me an informed reporter on on medical issues i am a reporter when i'm in my reporting job who's informed by my medical background but I, I hadn't really thought of it the other way around, the idea that my journalism career could really impact my medical career. I mean, in, in some ways, you know, you, you, you practice medicine and we go through training and there's a real sort of um, there's a there's a, uh, a process by which this all happens. And you're surrounded by people who are doing similar things to you. So you even if it's not directly taught the hierarchy, the process you, you, you observe and you learn. But I do think the point that you make about listening is really interesting. I always enjoyed um, the the aspect of listening to my patients' stories. I, I felt, you know, like I think a lot of doctors do. You don't get enough of that time. But I remember one of my professors when I was in my training. I, I trained at the University of Michigan.
1: Yeah.
3: The the um, he he would always talk about these patients he would go see a patient they come back into the clinic where all of us residents were sitting and he would say this guy is a 63 year old guy he was fly fishing in the northwest and you're not going to believe it but his boots got stuck in the mud and the water was coming kind of quickly and he, and he reached down trying to loosen his boots from the mud and during that time he felt a sharp pain in his back and it radiated down his leg into his big toe and all of a sudden you know most people would say hey a 63-year-old guy with an L5 S1 disc in room two, you know. There was always a story with him, and I, I loved it. I remembered it. Mm-hmm. I rem- Every time I saw that guy, I remembered he was the fly fisherman, right? It was those little things, those little ways of visualizing things. And, and we all know, I mean, you, you know, I mean, because of the way that you've chosen to approach your life and your storytelling, that medicine has some of the richest, most intimate stories of all. There's great writers, uh, uh, fellow South Asians, you know, I mean, you, you look at Abraham Verghese's book, it's one of my favorites, Cutting for Stone. And, you know, all, all of those books, they tell these incredible stories. And we have this privilege of being able to work in a field that is filled with these stories. I think what journalism taught me was was to really slow down and listen. Yeah. And, and it, 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 it's, it's joyous. It makes a big difference. It makes me feel much more connected.
0: And I wonder, you know, the the joy that you feel that you you gain from listening to those stories, being in the medical office, understanding how to be a better listener, and in fact developing that empathy—it's it, it can be sort of innate and inherent and indescribable as a physician. Ha, have you found that that same kind of empathy is informing your journalistic work too?
3: I, th- I think so. I you know I, I really. Um... I think, in part, you know, you you are who you are, right? I mean, I think that the thing about television sometimes there's this perception that that um, you know there's there's this performance aspect to it, and I think you know anytime you're doing television or anything like that, there certainly you realize it is a visual medium, and so there is a little bit of of wanting to to present things crisply and and a very in a very engaging way or as engaging as you can at least. But I but I do think that for me, um, I've it's not my nature i think to to sort of delve into the to the muddier sort of aspects uh, the more provocative aspects just because they're provocations mm-hmm. call it empathy call it what you want but you know right now what what's happening in the country is a good example i mean I, I have I have found as a doctor that, you know, yelling and screaming at my patients doesn't work. Yeah. And fear mongering doesn't work either. I mean, that's the thing, is that if you're if you're serious about trying to institute some sort of change, what you realize from a purely physiological standpoint is that fear is not a really good strategy because, you know, <laughs> You you activate the amygdala, and your listeners, probably smart listeners, know what that means. It's the emotional centers of the brain. But you're activating the amygdala, and then you might get a very, very fast, hot reaction. But it's not likely to be a very well-thought-out or or well-formulated reaction. If you eat that cheeseburger, you will have a heart attack. Oh, my gosh, I'm never going to eat meat again, right? And that lasts for a week, and then the person's right back to where they were. If you do that, you will get cancer, and then it leads to some really quick... Sort of hot emotional reaction, but nothing that's long standing. So, even when it comes to the vaccines and and the hesitancy around them and things like that, you really have to think about the strategy. In part, I think, like I said, it's my nature. I think just to truly be empathetic towards people. I think I learned that from my own parents and the people with whom I was lucky to be surrounded when I was a child. But I think it's also just in terms of what works. Yeah. You know, um, you know if you're if you're serious about trying to make the change, then do what works.
0: You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Stay tuned.
4: Hi, this is Hina from Being Bramp, and you can check out ruckusavenueradio.com
3: for more information about the latest station programming and more.
0: Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with CNN medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. You know, speaking of change and Kind of the understanding that we have to have with each other to get to that kind of an outcome. Your new book, World War C, is out, and and I love the section on fighting for our future. Thank you. Um, so, so so important and and so profound. We're we're often in innately so quick to sometimes notice what our differences are rather than those similarities. And you've been through so many different. Events, signature events, nine eleven, and Katrina, and SARS, and H one N one, and Ebola. And now reflecting on on COVID nineteen, both in this country and in India, what conversations need to happen next to ensure that the success of we translate to the success of me?
3: Hmm. That's it's a great it's a great question, and you know. To be totally honest, you know, there's been some real surprises here um, with what I've seen in this regard during this pandemic. And what I mean by that is that I think that, you know, <laughs> when I was a kid, I, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, these science fiction novels. I love science fiction. And and you always imagine that if there was ever some sort of alien invasion, it would be the the one thing that would sort of galvanize planet Earth. Right something from another planet would make all the people on planet Earth be more cohesive. Maybe it's a threat, maybe it's not, but we we need to stand as one. And in some ways, you know, this virus was kind of like that, right? It was a novel pathogen. It wasn't from another planet, but it was brand new and it was affecting all of us. And we did not galvanize the way that Another common threat would have galvanized us, or maybe would have galvanized us. And I think that's really it's really worth exploring. I mean, there were some real disappointments, I think, in terms of human behavior in response right. to this. There was these siloed off cultures. I mean, I think even now there's real real issues of equity. People often use that as a euphemistic argument. I, I, I'm just telling you that, look, we we need to be in this together or we're really not going to be successful. Even now, going forward, if, if certain countries around the world end up having significant spread of the virus still, we know that that may uh, em- enable more mutations that potentially could be problematic. And that affects the whole world. It's just the way it is. And, and I think most people sort of realize that by now, and still have, you know, these issues of, of equity. But... Um, well, I, I'm still optimistic, I guess, in terms of what we learned and through through this pandemic, that the collective is going to still be the most powerful force. I see it in kids more so than in my my age group. You know, I'm in I'm older than you. But I could tell because I was already working when you were still in your chief residency. So I, I know that I, right. I, <laughs> I've right. But I I um. But you know, I I, I just. I hope that the younger, I have three girls who are teenagers, and I see a significant amount of that collective feel. Um, You know, we're in this together, we're going to take care of each other sort of feel. And so that makes me optimistic about the future. I think for now, for the time being, I really think that some of the things that really protect us globally have to be codified, I think the idea of investing in prevention and counting on people's good intentions, I'm, I'm okay with that, but I think we have to make sure it actually happens. We have to invest in in preparation and prevention in a way that we ha- hadn't really thought about before.
0: Do, do you think that the those investments in trust and relationship building and education are going to come from youth and parents and families and sadly not from institutions and, uh, those kinds of structural things that are already in place—is it going to have to, in some ways, come from uh, unexpected places where where we do kind of galvanize and unite?
3: I think. I think probably. I think that the what we ask of certain institutions, whether it be political institutions or or otherwise, uh, has to really, I think, be evaluated. I think that in some ways they're not necessarily always set up to be the most trustworthy. And I'm not saying that to malign those institutions. It's just that, you know, even if you go back and look historically at who people trusted the most, perhaps not surprisingly, you trust your your insular group the most first and then sort of concentric circles from, from beyond that. So when you start to hear from governmental organizations that are making sweep, sweeping proclamations or... Um, even celebrity public service announcements, those things may have some impact, but ultimately, it, it is your it is your unit, your tribe, your insular unit that you trust the most. I, I thought it was interesting. Even if you go back and look at H1N1 back in 2009, yeah. there was a lot of vaccine hesitancy then as well. People may not remember because it wasn't as big a, a pandemic, as severe a pandemic, but there was significant hesitancy, up to 60% at one point. And what they found was that the person that people were most likely to listen to in terms of actually shifting from not taking the vaccine to taking it was their own family health care provider. It was their it was their person. They knew them. They knew each other. There was that trust. I think as human beings, we evolved as suspicious creatures. Yeah, we had to be suspicious. We had to be skeptical. We could not trust. Trust in some way was letting go of something that was very, very primal to us. For survival. If you weren't suspicious or skeptical, you could die. I mean, it was, that was, that was early, early civilization. If you live in a, in a society of rules and laws, does it allow you to trust? I trust when I walk down the street that a car pulling up on the road is not going to swerve onto the sidewalk and hit me. Yeah. I got trust when I go to a restaurant and pay with a credit card that I'm not going to be food poisoned. You know, wh- whatever it may be, those things come after lots and lots of work and they cannot be betrayed. If you betray that trust, or if, it, or if the sense is that it's betrayed, it's very, very hard to regain that. Much harder to regain broken trust than to gain it in the first place. So I think we have a lot of work to do. There's been a lot of trust that's been violated here and it's, it's, it's sad in a way, but I don't think it's irreparable.
0: Yeah, I wonder because we've found that in this pandemic culture, after all the conversations and this magnification on the pandemic and on public health institutions, you know, these conversations have been very profound, but I've, I've found that we're hopefully coming away from this sentiment of retreating into those tribes, and, and hopefully those conversations are, are becoming a little bit easier. When you think about all of these conversations that are happening, not just in this country, but globally tying these together in policy, and media, and medicine, and sort of how they, how they weave together. I know you've been really passionate about trying to weave these together in this uh, Life Itself conference. And are these conversations that, that have to happen at the grassroots level as we try and connect all of these things together and, and go beyond just sort of the, the thinkers and the creators that are out there, but try and find these thinkers and creators and this excellence in, at the community level?
3: I think so. I, I think whether it's grassroots or really, really uh, tapping on the on the experience and expertise of people who are living these things that we're talking about. I think as a policy person, and you know, I've worked in policy jobs where I'm working at the you know on healthcare at the White House. You know, my greatest revelations would would come when I would spend time with people, and and I'm talking you know walk the sidewalk because there's just all these little non-intuitives that come about. That I did not realize that was a big deal to you. I didn't realize that this is how this informed your thinking on this so much. I thought that was a trivial sort of point, but in fact, it's huge for you. And and now I understand why. But I do think, like when I when I think about a role of someone like me, and I say this with I, I say this with great humility. Yeah. It, it is it is a like the life itself, or other or even media. It's a chance, I think, to really connect those who are living that experience. Call it the grassroots with with people who can who can implement some sort of policy change. I can I can be the connective tissue I think for those people. I'm neither a policymaker nor would I be so audacious to say I've lived the the life and the experience of some of the people that we're we're talking about. But I I uh, you know can can bring together, you know, the governor of California where you are with people who are working on the front lines of a new PPE plant in, you know, somewhere in, in the country so they can really understand. Or or another one, you know, there was a big conversation about monoclonal antibodies and why can't we just scale these up? I mean, how hard could it be, right? They're just proteins. And yeah. to really explain, look, let me show you what goes into manufacturing this and why it has to be done at this particular scale. And then have make sure the governor of a state is in the room who can hear this, and then that will influence how they, they approach something. But I, I think you know it, that, that's part of that building that trust as well. I think we, we talk we talk at people more than talking to them. We, we know what people think, but we don't always know how people think. Sometimes I just want to know how people think. I, I, I can walk into conversation pretty certain that I'm not going to agree with somebody on something because I've already heard what they think about it. Right. But the reason I'll still have the conversation is because if I don't think they're a lunatic, then I do want to know how they think. I, I do want to understand how they arrived at that. Maybe, maybe I'll change my mind. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have changed my mind on things. I don't. I don't walk in uh, fully convinced that I'm always right. But I do think not talking at people, talking to them, learning how they think, not just what they think, is 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 the connective tissue that builds that trust and actually gets things done. I think you're right. Just
0: it, it goes back to engaging and listening. If if you're not, if you don't have that listening hat on uh, all the time, then you're going to miss that nugget. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Stay tuned.
2: Hi, this is Omardarani. Listen to Rokas Avenue Radio at Dashradio.com and download the Dash Radio app for complete access 24 hours a day, seven days a week to our station.
0: Welcome back to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's once again rejoin our conversation with neurosurgeon and author Sanjay Gupta. My wife, who's also a South Asian American doctor, Asked me to confirm something with you. and She said that (laughs) Sanjay is truly an Indian American or South Asian American doctor. If he's likely been cornered by an auntie or uncle in some way, shape or form at a party to spontaneously deliver profound medical advice. Um, so is that right? Is that likely happened to you like many of us?
3: <laughs> yes, all, all, all the time, all the time. And it's, you know, sometimes uh, very profound. Sometimes it's quite trivial, you know, but yes, it happens quite a bit. Um, but but you know what? To the earlier point, though, Abe, I'll tell you that sometimes they already know what they think. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they really just want to be heard <laughs> so that goes back to the thing
0: yeah it's it's just as uh it's just as confirming to know that you know they may be quite skeptical or, or they might be already have made up their mind as to what they want to hear you know on that note what's it like for you in 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 your perspective what's it like to be a south asian american in 2021
3: i am um... <laughs> yeah you know, I've lived here my whole life. My parents uh, both immigrated here. Uh, we lived in a very small homogenous town in Michigan, uh, fewer than four thousand population, and everyone around me was white. Everyone around me had single syllable Anglo-Saxon names. so I was you know I was different in so many ways. and so I think um when you're when you grow up that way, there's a part of you that thinks that I need to understand what assimilation really means, what the value of it is, and is that the key to success? Is that how you succeed in a society like this, is to assimilate? And I struggle with that um, a good chunk, I think, of my early life. I think now in 2021, there is this, I think, um, this, this, this real endophile sort of feeling. I think people uh, have come to appreciate genuinely not everybody, but many people appreciate the, the diversity and the value of that diversity in this country. And, um, and that, that extends to, to all demographics, including South Asians. I've always, I think, felt a real kinship to South Asians. My best friends are South Asians, you know, and I think that uh, when I started doing this kind of work in media, uh, twenty years ago, it was unusual at the time, and and then over the last twenty years, there's been a lot of people who've who've approached me, who are South Asians, and say, "Hey, I'd like to do something like that," right? And I take great pride in being able to help because I'm not going to be able to do this forever. I may not even be able to do it that much longer. I'm getting tired, and and but but I but I do love the idea of of this representation of of south asians in all facets of our society so i think it's you know, I, I i'm i'm a practical guy I'm, i don't want to sound overly euphemistic but i think it's it's good in many ways it's 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 much better than it was there's still a lot of anti-asian rhetoric and violence and and things like that that you see and i think this pandemic has unleashed some of the worst behaviors that i've seen in, in a long time as well some things that are reminiscent of my own childhood things that i thought were dead and buried yeah. and then you realize that so many of those tendencies at least in some people are still there under the surface and and are just you know unmasked if you will by by terrible forces so i i, I think it's i think it's good i you know i have a brother who's 10 years younger than i am i have as i mentioned three teenage girls so i see the life of uh, i see what's happening through their eyes through my brother 10 years later, what a decade of a difference made. And then what, you know, three decades of difference made. Right. I think it's gone in the right direction. Long answer, but that's no. how and, I No, you know, and,
0: and I've thought about that. I've asked this to others that, you know, in some ways kind of aside from our names, are there elements of this rich background and, and even the, you know, South Asian American experience of not just having the heritage, but growing up in Michigan in a smaller town, in that homogenous community, are there elements of this that kind of transcend and bleed into your daily work? Even you know whether it's personally, professionally, you know, do, does it uh, inform the way you think a little bit? You know, are there are there kind of maybe more implicit ways that that it actually you know pervades through? Uh,
3: you know, it's it's sometimes hard to have this conversation. I think as a fifty-one-year-old man, right, because you think that sometimes these are. Um, like uh, not that I'm super old or anything but I do feel like these issues are issues that I am now thinking that uh, people who are younger than me are going to be dealing with but but what I would say is that for me personally um, I see my role uh, in some ways you know what are we still in this country in the United States still not even 2% of the population right people don't realize that uh, South Asians Indian Americans you know we're a very small segment of the population here in the United States and I I see my role as somebody – it's not necessarily a leadership role, but it's a role where I want to empower people. Yeah. So I take great pride in my Indianness, if you will. Yeah. I, I, I think that that's probably the best way of saying it. I, I think, again, going back to this assimilation thing, I, I think that there's times when I would look back and say – Well, gosh, that was just embarrassing, wasn't it? It was just embarrassing how we had to behave. It would be embarrassing when my parents would have their bosses over for dinner and my parents both very intelligent people. My mom, a refugee uh, after the partition, who then becomes the first woman engineer at Ford Motor Company. My dad, a brilliant guy, brilliant mathematician to this day. And yet they would have to pander in a way that I found very... Unbecoming, you know, this is when I was a kid, I'm talking about. And like, if I can, if I can be part of a, a society and, and help create that society, that that doesn't have to happen. Yeah. That you, you are you and you don't, you do you and you don't have to worry about having to assimilate in a way that's uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I think is is really it's important. I, I, I'm i not eloquent on this issue. I mean, I'm still I still struggle with it. And I'm thinking about it a lot. You know, what's funny is I don't think many of
0: us are. And I think that it, it does require that kind of deep introspection. I thought of this when I was thinking of, you know, you've done some work in, in your book that the keeps sharp um sort of project. And and I was thinking about breathing and pranayama and hmm. this sense of, you know, community and extended families and sort of, you know, that that nature of of building these strong social connections and sort of protecting our our minds as we age. And, you know, I I, n- I now know I'll have to get Sudoku advice from your dad looks like too. So <laughs> but you know, I I think we all struggle with that in in trying to find out like introspectively how does this actually bleed into our, our daily lives and you know maybe for some it's more obvious than others um but for for most of us it probably you know goes beyond i think i see that a lot in my kids and how they um actually it. because i find that you know oddly they they do things perhaps you know in ways that that my father or my mother would um, without me even knowing it and they're sort of carrying on that that Hmm. You know daily heritage in in some ways
3: that's that's really interesting right I mean sometimes when you notice that uh, then you, you're you're reminded of just either how genetic things are or how much neuronal mirroring there is in terms of our behaviors and when you when you fight that tendency you know it's it feels like an uphill battle you know if you can just feel very comfortable in your own skin that there there's a lot of joy in that you know for sure when I was a kid, I'll just tell you quickly um so again, small town, Michigan, right? Everyone around me is not just white, but single-syllable Anglo-Saxon names, John, you know yeah. Mike, Dave, Bob, you know. and, and then Sanjay. And, and I remember thinking when I was six years old that I could solve all of the problems that, that come with what I just described, which was, you know, I was the different person um, when you think of xenophobia. No. xenophobia is a is a fear of others and it and and it can be anybody that's different right so if you're the only dark skinned person in a place like that and the iran iranian hostage crisis is happening then you take on all the attributes of a of a uh, group that people are angry with you know because of the hostage crisis whatever may be happening oil prices opec whatever might be happening this is far uh, a long time ago maybe for many of your listeners but these things were my reality as a child and, and I thought I could solve all those problems by simply changing my name to Steve. I would just change my name to Steve, right? And Steve, by the way, was a $6 million man, Steve Austin. So that was where that came from. Yes, I, 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 I was just going to ask you that. Um. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so. I wanted to change my name. And I went to my mom and I said, change my name to Steve. And my mom, to her credit, said, okay, let's do it. That's what you want. We'll do it. We'll change your name. And I kind of thought about that night I was a kid, I was six, seven years old, and then thought, you know what that just feels wrong. It just doesn't feel right. I can't quite put my hand on it, but how can i how can I respond to that name? How can I go through the rest of my life having you know had this sort of secret that I changed my name when I was a kid? and I didn't do it and I think it's one of the things of which I'm most proud. you know people often people will say to me, especially in the television you know about to the television career, they hired you. You were one of the only Indians, you know, they hired yeah. you even though you were Indian at that time. And I think I can confidently say they didn't hire me in spite of me being Indian. They hired me because I was Indian. Right. 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 And then that was an attribute. And I want to remind you of that. And I want to remind my kids of that and young people of that. Embrace that. And, you know, you're, it, it, it's much more likely you're going to be preordained for success.
0: I'm grateful for it because I don't think uh, Steve Gupta has the same ring to it.
3: Uh, <laughs> Although, you know how you said you, knew, you know 7,000 Sanjay Guptas? I actually met a couple Steve Guptas. I did meet a couple. I didn't tell them the story. <laughs> but I, That's right. If they're out there listening, they they know. <laughs>
0: they know, right. You're listening to Trust Me. I know what I'm doing. After a quick break, we'll come back to our conversation with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Stay tuned.
2: Hey, this is Vedant Gupta from Global Kid Media. Listen to Ruckus Avenue Radio at dashradio.com and download the Dash Radio app for complete access 24 hours a day, 7 days a week to our station.
0: I'm Abhay Dandekar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Let's rejoin our conversation with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Let me, let me ask you this. I mean, this, this past year, we've seen so much of medicine research data wisdom even democratized and it's in in the hands of so many and i hate to use the word weaponized but it's out there and it's available And, and you're on a platform and have the the knowledge and the credentials to exemplify truth and scientific reason and authority in that way you know, we as physicians have, have become really fatigued in, in some way of, of trying to represent that and um, in some ways combat that sort of misinformation. How do we accelerate an authentic and trusting relationship with society with that knowledge and rigor uh, as a backdrop for it without compromising the, the freedom and the accessibility of, of this knowledge and that power of it?
3: I, I, first of all, I think it's possible what you're describing. I think that I think that that scenario that you're describing is is not inconceivable. I think it is it is challenging, but I think there's a couple things I think just to preface. You, I think you you have to accept. One is that, you know, even 20 years ago when I started doing this sort of work, um, you, you remember it was sort of the post, uh, right in the middle of WebMD, yeah. and WebMD was this, you know, this site where many doctors were bemoaning the idea that, wait a second, patients are getting all this access, they're showing up at the office with sheaves of paper, I want this medication, I want this, and they wanted to, to really push back on it. And I think, you, I think there is a realization now, certainly, but even back then, that we're probably not going to stop the trains on on more information getting out there it's just it's the society in which we live and and technology is so predicated on the sharing of information that i think to try and just put yourself on the train tracks and stop the train is is probably not a very fruitful task i think i think that the second thing is that even when it comes to misinformation and i would say disinformation yeah There's a lot of it disinformation, meaning strategically misinforming people as opposed to just being wrong on things. It's out there, and that will probably also continue. I was talking to people at Facebook uh, who were telling me that on any given day, there may be hundreds of millions of pieces of misinformation that are being Mm -hmm. perpetuated. They try and take down as much as they can, but they may be taking down a single-digit percentage of it in any given day. They simply can't keep up. And then the third thing I think I would preface is by saying you— you cannot define success, I think, by, by convincing every single person of what you think is right. You can't. Um, you're going to have to accept the fact that, that success in, in this world of, of information and, and information transfer is going to have to account for some people simply never accepting the message, no matter what you do, no matter how you ex- distribute it, even if you are the trusted family doctor, for example, doesn't matter. So once you sort of account for those three things, I think you then realize that it is possible to then be strategic uh, about this, this um, democratization of information mm-hmm. and say, look, instead, as an example, instead of taking down hundreds of millions of pieces of bad information, why don't we make sure that every time something comes up about filling the topic, that we're also putting up good information that we're going to make sure that if someone searches for, you know, vaccine or hydroxychloroquine or whatever, that, yes, they're going to get the information that's out there, but we're also going to make sure that well-vetted, well-thought-out information is also going to be there. I think we also, I think, have to make a distinction in our own minds, and it'll affect how we present things between information and knowledge. Information is plentiful. It's out there, and it is, it is all treated the same. There's no distinction, you know, between it. People can read the same thing, and you I saw a study that said this. It was, a, it was a study that said this. Now, it turns out it was a terrible study, but how do I explain that um, to somebody without really getting granular about what is a meta-analysis versus a randomized control trial, and why a meta-analysis of 18 bad studies doesn't make it a good study all of a sudden, you know, whatever it may be. But instead, really say, what are you trying to do? with this information because what knowledge is is contextualized information that is actionable for people. So sometimes it's worth taking the extra beat, if you can, if you have that sort of relationship and say, what is it we're really trying to convey here? We're talking about vaccines. What are we really trying to convey here? Are we trying to cast doubt on their efficacy? Are we trying to explain how they work? Are we trying to convince people to take them? Really defining the objective as opposed to just using information in and of itself as the currency. I think is it it, it make, it's worked for, it's it's helped me. I, I shouldn't say worked for me because I'm not I'm not perfect at it by any means. But I think when I sort of keep these things in mind, anytime I'm even walking into a a a television segment that's even just a few minutes long, I kind of go through this thinking process in my own head. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I got the I got the data, I got the information, I've done the homework, and you do a lot of homework in this job. But ultimately, what am I trying to convey here? Let's be clear on my through line, and if I do that right, then I've transformed information into knowledge, and it's more likely to stick. Um, I'm not going to get everybody, yeah. and and some days are worse than others in terms of just I'm, I'm I'm in disbelief at what people believe sometimes, but um but that's how I generally approach it.
0: It, it reminds me that there are always going to be forces out there to try and um, make disinformation, in fact, the their currency because it either sells or it's it's popular. But at the end, you know, like you mentioned, knowledge. Is really the outcome that we're all looking for, and maybe that just means reframing what our collective mission has to be with that. And, and it sounds like for you, it it's sort of that thoughtfulness is behind every one of your uh, segments, uh, at least on television.
3: Yeah, I, I you know, I, I try to. You know, I, I, um, it's been some frustrating days, Abe, yeah. over the past couple of years. You know, but I, I'll tell you, I had a. A story the other day that kind of left a mark on me, which was that I, you know, our air conditioning in our house was having some trouble. So we had the air conditioning um, repairman came to the house. Nice guy, probably in his mid seventies, very nice, soft-spoken guy. Wore a mask. He went to go fix the air conditioning, and um, and then as he was walking out, I was I, I was walking him out, and he I didn't know if he knew who I was. I you know wasn't part of the thing, but apparently he knew who I was, and he says to me in a very nice way, he says, "Hey." can i ask you a question i said sure he goes should i get the vaccine and i said yeah yeah you should you should definitely get it i mean you know the only there's only concerns early on were some people who had these anaphylactic reactions but you know if you don't have an allergy you should get it
1: yeah
3: he goes and then he says to me he goes the reason i ask is because i have this um stent in a blood vessel in my leg and i'd heard some some concerns about blood clotting right and, and so I, I didn't know whether I should, should get it. That, that was a concern. And I said, well, yeah, you know, there, there were some concerns, uh, and there was even a and j trial, and it was some concerns about clotting. But it was pretty rare, and it was mostly postmenopausal women. And what they have found subsequently is that your risk of clotting is far greater from the disease itself than from the vaccine. And he thanked me. He said, thank you. You know, I've, I, I've been trying to call my doctor, but I haven't gotten a call back, so thank you. But I really want to get vaccinated because last week, my daughter died of COVID. And before she went on the ventilator, she made me promise that I would get vaccinated. But I was worried about this clot. So I've been trying to call my doctor, and you're the first person I've been able to ask. And Abe, it broke my heart. And when you ask about um, empathy, you know, it, it's like if we if are to cast the people who are not getting the vaccine with one broad brush and say, hey you guys at this point you're idiots you know don't do i mean come on you vax hesitant vax averse whatever it's a big wide world out there and i think if you're if you're serious about making change and not just a political statement then do the work get in the trenches talk to the people convey knowledge not just information and maybe you'll make a difference maybe not and you got to be okay with that
0: yeah and and such a such a terrific story um I wanted to ask you this: You still practice neurosurgery, and you still see patients. And given that that so many know you outside of the OR or outside of that patient encounter in the office or, or in that sort of uh, professional environment, I wanted to ask you this: When you leave the OR or when you leave the doctor's office after completing uh, an encounter and completing surgery, what do you hope your patients, your staff, your colleagues, what do you what do you hope they say about you? <laughs>
3: Well, I hope they don't say that that's the TV guy, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that, that right. becomes my moniker, that I'm just the TV guy because, you know, I, I do take um, my my um, medical career very seriously and I've, you know, spent, I spend a lot of time, I, I work at an academic institution, I train residents, I have very good relationships with people, you know, I, I hope they, they think that I, I'm... I'm a, a very good doctor. You know, it, it's funny. I think I get a lot of a lot of patients who come to me because I am on TV, which I always think is funny, right? It's like I think I'm a good neurosurgeon, but I'm no better because I'm on television, right? But sometimes that's the perception. So in, in some ways, I've tried to keep those parts of my life very separate. You know, I mean, I, I don't... Um, uh, there's some television, medical television people who are my friends, by the way, but they're always wearing their scrubs on TV. And I'm thinking, look, buddy, you know, wear those in the hospital, you know, have exactly. some respect for the for, for the job, you know, whatever it might be. But but um, no, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I think what I'd like people, my my staff, my my students, my residents, my patients, obviously, to say about me is that I took really good care of them and that I spent the time and used good judgment and used excellent surgical technique if it was an operation whatever it may be all the things that i think any doctor would want them to describe and then for my students and residents that i taught them something that they they walked into the situation with a certain amount of knowledge and they walked away with a little bit more I, i i love that that still gives me a high you know it's why i still do it why i still live this very busy bifurcated life
0: well, we're walking away with a lot more, Sanjay. Thank you so much for joining us. What a treat! And I hope you'll come back and join us at some point.
3: My pleasure. Hope to meet you in person. Good luck to your daughter. I'm so glad that she's uh, three miles away. So you know what? I'm gonna tell my three daughters because I got one who's gonna be looking at colleges next year. I'm gonna say you can stick close to home. That'll make dad real happy. Look at that! Right. That'll <laughs> make daddy very happy. So,
0: good luck to you, and good luck to you, Sanjay. Thanks for all you do, and in my opinion, I'm so thankful you didn't go with Steve. And a big shout-out to the engineering team at Ruckus Avenue Radio. You guys are the best. This show is 100% finger-lickin' good, and thanks to everyone who helps keep it that way. Till next time, I'm Abhay Dandekar. Because every story told is a lesson learned. Because every lesson learned is a story waiting to be told. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and I share stories about South Asian people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, "Trust me, I know what I'm doing." Hear it every Monday, Tuesday on Ruckus Avenue Radio, or wherever you get your
1: podcast.
2: Show Do me evil
4: the Desai Foundation has been empowering women and girls through community programs to elevate health and livelihood in India and the U.S. Our health and livelihood programs are needed now more than ever to ensure that every woman, boy, and girl is able to move forward in the long road to recovery for rural communities. That's why we want to invite you to the best Diwali party in NYC, Diwali on the Hudson, Join us for an evening of networking, open bar, delicious food from Daisy Gully, and entertainment from Grammy-nominated Falu, Ajni Dave, and the Resistance Revival Chorus to celebrate and support the communities we serve in rural India. It's Wednesday, October 20th at HK Hall in New York City. Go to DiwaliHudson21.Givesmart.com for more.